chapter 2. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word to our hearts, our souls, and our salvation. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of this text. And thus I plead that you help me teach. That I be clear. And I be faithful. To this portion of scripture. And may this be a worship experience. For all of us here, so that your Son is duly glorified in our midst through it. Amen. And amen. So far, the message of the book has been really clear. Jesus is better than the prophets. He's far superior than all the angelic beings because He is Yahweh. He is God. He is Creator who became man. And then, last couple weeks, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, we saw that in light of that reality of the superiority of Jesus over all things, we're given a sober warning. Do not neglect this and thus drift away from these realities, truths, the gospel. And that brings us to our passage now this morning. Notice that verses 5 to 9 begin with the word for. At the beginning of verse 5, which means this passage is giving the reason for what he just said in verses 1 to 4. Because, for, or because, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So, what he just said was that our salvation is so great, it has been so well testified to by eyewitnesses that it would be a terrible thing to neglect it. 
and to drift away from it. Why? Because it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. That's why. That's what he says. In other words, he's saying, what is so great about the salvation is that there's a future world to come. And the answer to the question, who will rule in that world? That's the answer to why the salvation is so great in this passage. And he's saying, therefore, you don't want to neglect it and miss out on that. And that's what verses 5 to 9 are about. So, let me just go slowly. The flow, what we have before us is, look, don't, don't neglect the coming the future coming world, the great salvation, because as verse 5 says, in the coming world, it's not to angels that he's going to subject all things to. Okay, but to whom will he subject them? And that's what verses 6 to 9 are about. They explain it. So we're going to read verses 6 to 8 slowly. And remember, here's the question that's sitting on the table. Not to angels, okay? To whom? It has been testified somewhere. Here's his answer. And he's quoting Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. It's what David said. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing Outside his control. Okay, that's the answer that the Hebrew writer gives. How shall we understand what, he's, what is he really saying to us? That's the question. First, because he's quoting this good portion of Psalm 8, let's think about Psalm 8 first in its context. When this is penned by David, he's referring to human beings. He's referring to mankind as a whole. That's the context originally. David in Psalm 8 looks up into the sky the heavens and the stars and the galaxies, and he's praising God. And he marvels and says, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him for a little 
while lower than the angels. So, so David says, look, man seems so insignificant in the vast array of everything in, in, in your creation. What, what is man? But at the same time, he's in touch with the majesty of man. You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under man's feet. That's Psalm 8. That's what David's marveling at. The question is, is that what the writer to the Hebrews means when he quotes this passage? Or is he taking the words of the original meaning of Psalm 8 and applying them specifically to one man? Jesus? That's the question. For the, for, for, for the writer to see in Psalm 8 one particular man of humanity and thus to interpret the psalm messianically I think is possible and it's justifiable. But that doesn't mean that's what he's doing. And that was the big struggle in the exegesis of this text. And then picking other people's minds, other commentators on Hebrews and about the issue. So let me go slowly. This is the question, because we want to know, what is God communicating to us is to get at what is the writer meaning in what he Says So the pivotal question has to do with those pronouns in the second part of verse 8. In other words, him or his. To whom does the him and the his refer? Let me read it again slowly. 8b. Because this is the Hebrew writer's commentary now. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. How should we read that? Should we read it like this? Now, in putting everything in subjection to Christ, he left nothing outside Christ's control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Christ. Or, should we read it, now in putting everything in subjection to humanity, he left nothing outside humanity's control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to humanity. That's the question. If, if the writer 
means for us to read Jesus Christ in that, then the flow is something like this. The man of Psalm 8 ultimately refers to Christ, who is crowned with glory and honor, and everything has been put in subjection under His feet. And what Psalm 8 means is that there's nothing left that is not subjected to Jesus Christ, the God-man. But we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. All right. This is where I've come down. I don't think that's what He means. I think He means for us to read humanity. Human beings, and this is where I'm going to slowly show why. First is this. When a New Testament author is quoting an Old Testament passage, and if you understand them to, to, to take the Old Testament passage at face value, okay, in its original meaning, and that still makes all the sense in the world for what the New Testament author is doing, then that's what you should assume. See, the flow of thought goes like this, therefore. This is what, this is what I think he's saying. Verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, right? Pay very close attention to what you heard, to the gospel, so that you don't neglect this great, great, great salvation which is coming in the not here, but the future, in the world to come. Then, verses 5 to 8 say that salvation, it is very great it, and worth embracing without drifting away from it because God did not subject that coming world to angels, but He subjected it to human beings, to us. To the, as he just said at the very last verse of chapter 1, to the heirs of salvation, which means there's an inheritance we do not have. It's future. We will inherit it. We will inherit the world. This is one of the reasons, the author is saying, of why salvation is so because we're destined to have all of creation put in subjection under our feet. Everything in creation will serve the saved completely in the resurrection and in their eternal salvation for their eternal good. So there's David. He knows Genesis. He looks at it. He marvels that God put man over all creation. That's what he says. That's what David's about. And then the Hebrew writer sees it and he confirms it in verse 8. Now in putting Everything in subjection to mankind, he left nothing outside 
his control. Literally nothing that is not subjected to him in the original. But there's a problem. It's the fall of man in the garden and the penalty. You will give birth Weeds. Adam, you're going to work and toil and fight against this creation. It's all messed up, and you'll do that until you die, and you will die. The fall. The writer sees that at the end of verse 8. If you have ESV, it says at, but literally you should insert a but. Because it's there in the Greek, death. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to mankind. No duh. I think that hymn there still means mankind. The human beings that have been referred to in verse 8. Man is to rule creation under God. And the writer says, but look around. That ain't happening. We don't see it. Now, I want you to turn to Romans 8 for a moment. I want you to listen to what Paul says about the fall and about human beings and about the creation all connected together. Romans 8, verse 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be one day set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The point of Paul there is extremely similar to the point of our passage in Hebrews 2. The writer to the Hebrews tells us to be vigilant, to treasure this promise, this great salvation. And then he says, the reason that it is so great is because God has promised to subject the whole creation to His redeemed people. Not, not, not to angels. To you the inheritors of this great salvation. And that hope is part of what makes it so great. That someday, those who have not neglected this salvation will be revealed, as Paul put it in Romans 8, they will be revealed then as the sons of God in the resurrection. And all creation will serve them rather than destroy them the way it does 
now. There will be a day when the sons of God, when the body of Christ will be victorious over the natural world rather than constantly as now being victims of it of hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis and cancer cells and diabetes and heart disease and wild animals and COVID and death. There will be that day. But the author then tells us very realistically, wherever you look, anywhere in the world today, in every one of your experiences, what he just quoted from Psalm 8, you don't see it. That's, that's, that's not your experience. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to man. All things are not. Psalm 8 is not fulfilled in man. No matter how hard we try with science, medical science, to defeat and fight against the natural world, the creation, and we do pretty well. We, we pr the life expectancy is far exceeds most of human history. But we have not defeated what's coming, whether we prolong it or not. Death. It triumphs everywhere. The psalm says man has a great destiny as the ruler of creation. That's part of your great salvation. But in reality, it's not in subjection under our feet right now. We are not conquerors in that sense yet. We are all dead men walking. Every one of us. But then there's verse 9. How can the meaning of Psalm 8 be true? Who, who will deliver us from this fallen state and make Psalm 8, come to pass forever. Verse 9 is the writer to the Hebrews' answer to that question. So let's pick up with the end of verse 8 and let it flow into verse 9 and see if we see it. We do not yet see everything in subjection to man but we see Him, that one's referring to Jesus, but we, we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, 
namely Jesus. We see Him what? Crowned, there's soulmate, with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. In other words, you don't see Psalm 8 fulfilled in our lives now, but we see in Psalm 8 what? It was fulfilled in one man so far. Jesus. We are still subject to death and all kinds of terrible things right now. Here's the logic of verse 9. Jesus tasted death. He experienced human death as a substitute for all who were in Him. That was the purpose of His coming, of His suffering, and of His death. And Jesus, through that, and through the resurrection... And through the ascension, He passed through all of this being subjected to the fertility and has now already been crowned with honor and glory. And He is seated at the right hand of God. And everything is put in subjection under His feet as He goes on ruling until it is completely done. And so that substitutionary Bloody human death was the reason we have seen this. That's the reason this man is seated at the right hand of the majesty of God. And the only way that could have happened is the incarnation. Or as the text says about Jesus, who for a little while was made lower meaning in this futility of humanity in this world in mortality who for a little while was made lower than the angels or in other words who became man like Psalm 8 now the text says we have a vision as Christians. We see Him. Well, I mean, not really. As Peter's right. No, you've never seen Him. Oh, there's another way you do see Him. Don't you? How? Through the words I'm speaking. Through the words that are written. Through the gospel. It's how you see. Prayerfully through that, you... You, you see Him. So the question is, how does seeing Jesus crowned like Psalm 8 with glory and honor, how does that relate to our, the rest of us human beings, how does that relate to our fulfilling the great hope of Psalm 8 when we will one day triumph? over death. And God will put all creation in subjection under our feet. The answer is the last clause of verse 9. So that 
by the grace of God, Jesus might experience, taste, death for everyone. In other words, Jesus was the first human being to be restored to the destiny of Psalm 8 in His resurrection and His ascension. He has been crowned with glory and honor. We don't see death and creation subjected to us yet. But we see something else. Because that one man has entered into the glory of Psalm 8. It is the assurance that all who are in him will one day reign with him over all creation victoriously. That, look at the next verse, verse 10. Look what he's doing. I know we didn't read that this morning, but what he's doing, what is he doing? He, Jesus, is bringing many sons to glory. The glory of Psalm 8. That's the process of what's happening now. Jesus, until all things have finally been subjugated under your so what he's saying is, by being united to Jesus, to that one man, remember, if you're in him, you're an heir of something that's still in the future, an inheritor. Being united to that man means we will experience the fulfillment of Psalm 8. What happened to him? In His resurrection, His glorification will happen to everyone who's in Him. Called, justified, will be glorified together with Him. Because Jesus tasted death for us put away our sin, we can be sure that we will share His resurrection. And dominance, control over all creation. That right there is just basic gospel. When Christians hear that and they've been in church for 30 years and think, I never heard such a thing, it makes me want to cry. And that happens. L listen to how Paul, let's go to Paul now, just reflect the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have died, fallen asleep. For as by a man, Adam, came death, 
by a man. Jesus has come, the resurrection of the dead. Because as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first, the first fruits. Then, at his second coming, those who belong to Christ. Or the way Paul wrote it in Romans 5.17. If because of one man's trespass, thank you Adam, death reigned through that one man to all of us. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You like that? The first man, the first Adam sinned and he and all of his offspring were plunged and subjected to sinful nature and a creation that is subjected to fertility and each one subjected to death because of sin. It's how you're born. Started with Adam. Whether we like it or not, he was our representative of that one humanity. When you know the gospel, you say, I really like that. I really like it because Jesus was the second Adam. And, and you know what? I'm fine. Adam, you blew it for me. But thank, thank God, Jesus, you live for me. And I'll take that one now. I'll take your righteousness. I'll take your substitutionary death. I'll take your resurrection. The second Adam defeated death. And he restored the hope of Psalm 8. Even now, the hope of it for all of us who are still dead men walking. No wonder the writer calls it a great salvation. Even though now, we all are experiencing to one extent or another, and we don't know what's around the next corner, Pain, sufferings, evils are all around, heartache, tragedies. That's the state now of the readers when he wrote, of the writer when he wrote, and of us today. What do we do with it? Here's the take home. 
obey what the text says. Do not neglect pondering. Don't neglect the meaning. Don't neglect the implications of this great salvation. Love it. That you will reign. All things, including death, will finally be subjected under your feet with Christ Jesus. All things eventually will serve your good. And it will do so without pain and trials and heartache of body or soul and without death. Don't neglect. Don't drift. He says, if people ever say to you, you got your head in the clouds with a sweet by and by, ignore them. Ignore them. You're called to put your head up there. Yeah, there's a real world out here, but we're called to daily commune with our heads in the clouds of the gospel. As he says in our text, we see Jesus. Do you see him? What we saw last week, and these eyewitnesses testified to his resurrection, to his ascension. Can you see it? Here's how Paul tells Christians to live in Colossians 3.1. If then you being raised with Christ, is that you? Are you born again? Has new life come within you? Has the Holy Spirit come within you? Has He been gifted to you? If that's true, then here it is. Here's the command. Seek. That's an activity. An active verb. Seek the things that are above. Not the things that are on earth, but the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. We see Him. Namely, Jesus, who is seated and crowned with the glory and the honor of Psalm 8. We, we, we do not see all this miserable stuff in subjection to us yet. But we do see Him. That's the text. We see Him. Don't neglect Him. Continue to see Him. Continue to commune with Him who has gone before us, the perfect man, and to guarantee soulmate in the future for all of us. I'm going to close with a quote from the Apostle Paul. 
Christ the firstfruits. Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For Jesus must reign right now until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. What a glorious Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this wonderful gift. We thank You for the miracle of having not just minds, but hearts to listen to this great salvation. It's your doing, and we thank you that you do all things for your glory, which means bringing us into the experience of it by your Holy Spirit to embrace your Son. And so in our closing moments this morning, oh, let the songs of our hearts ring in praise and adoration and thanksgiving to you, your Son, by the Spirit. Amen. Let us stand.